Part two of Amy Foster by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. Amy Foster by Joseph Conrad. Section two. He must have been a real adventurer at heart, for how many of the greatest enterprises in the conquest of the earth had for their beginning just such a bargaining away of the paternal cow for the mirage, or true gold far away? I have been telling you, more or less in my own words, what I learned fragmentarily in the course of two or three years, during which I seldom missed an opportunity of a friendly chat with him. He told me this story of his adventure with many flashes of white teeth and lively glances of black eyes, at first in a sort of anxious baby-talk, then, as he acquired the language with great fluency, but always with that singing, soft, and at the same time vibrating intonation that instilled a strangely penetrating power into the sound of the most familiar English words, as if they had been the words of an unearthly language and he always would come to an end, with many emphatic shakes of his head, upon that awful sensation of his heart melting within him, directly he set foot on board that ship. Afterwards there seemed to come for him a period of blank ignorance, at any rate as to facts. No doubt he must have been abominably seasick and abominably unhappy. This soft and passionate adventurer, taken thus out of his knowledge, and feeling bitterly as he lay in his immigrant bunk, his utter loneliness, for his was a highly sensitive nature. The next thing we know of him, for certain, is that he had been hiding in Hammond's pig-pound by the side of the road to Norton six miles, as the crow flies, from the sea. Of these experiences he was unwilling to speak. They seemed to have seared into his soul a sombre sort of wonder and indignation. Through the rumors of the countryside, which lasted for a good many days after his arrival, we know that the fishermen of West Colebrook had been disturbed and startled by heavy knocks against the walls of weatherboard cottages, and by a voice crying piercingly strange words in the night. Several of them had turned out, even, but, no doubt, he had fled in sudden alarm at their rough, angry tones, hailing each other in the darkness. A sort of frenzy must have helped him up the steep Norton Hill. It was he, no doubt, who early the following morning had been seen lying, in a swoon, I should say, on the roadside grass by the Brinzet carrier, who actually got down to have a nearer look, but drew back, intimidated by the perfect immobility and by something queer in the aspect of that tramp, sleeping so still under the showers. As the day advanced, some children came dashing into school at Norton in such a fright that the schoolmistress went out and spoke indignantly to a horrid-looking man on the road. He edged away, hanging his head for a few steps, and then suddenly ran off with extraordinary fleetness. The driver of Mr. Bradley's moat-cart made no secret of it that he had lashed with his whip at a hairy sort of gypsy fellow who jumping up at a turn of the road by the vents made a snatch at the pony's bridle and he caught him a good one too right over the face he said 
that made him drop down in the mud a jolly sight quicker than he had jumped up. But it was a good half a mile before he could stop the pony. Maybe that in his desperate endeavors to get help, and in his need to get in touch with someone, the poor devil had tried to stop the cart. Also, three boys confessed afterwards to throwing stones at a funny tramp, knocking about all wet and muddy, and it seemed very drunk, in the narrow deep lane by the limkilns. All this was the talk of three villages for days. But we have Mrs. Finn's, the wife of Smith's wagoner, unimpeachable testimony that she saw him get over the low wall of Hammond's pig-pound and lurch straight at her, babbling aloud in a voice that was enough to make one die of fright. Having the baby with her, in a perambulator, Mrs. Fenn called out to him to go away, and, as he persisted in coming nearer, she hit him courageously with her umbrella over the head, and, without once looking back, ran like the wind with a perambulator as far as the first house in the village. She stopped then, out of breath, and spoke to old Lewis, hammering there at a heap of stones, and the old chap, taking off his immense black wire goggles, got up on his shaky legs to look where she pointed. Together they followed with their eyes the figure of the man running over a field. They saw him fall down, pick himself up, and run on again, staggering, and waving his long arms above his head, in the direction of the new barn's farm. From that moment he is plainly in the tolls of his obscure and touching destiny. There is no doubt after this of what happened to him. All is certain now. Mrs. Smith's intense terror, Amy Foster's stolid conviction held against the other's nervous attack, that the man meant no harm, Smith's exasperation, on his return from Darnford Market, at finding the dog barking himself into a fit, the back door locked, his wife in hysterics, and all for an unfortunate dirty tramp, supposed to be even then lurking in his stackyard. Was he? He would teach him to frighten women. Smith is notoriously hot-tempered, but the sight of some nondescript and miry creature sitting cross-legged amongst a lot of loose straw, and swinging itself to and fro like a bear in a cage, made him pause. Then this tramp stood up silently before him, one mass of mud and filth from head to foot. Smith, alone amongst his stacks with this apparition, in the stormy twilight ringing, with the infuriated barking of the dog, felt the dread of an inexplicable strangeness. But when that being, parting with his black hands the long matted locks that hung before his face, as you part the two halves of a curtain, looked out at him with glistening, wild, black-and-white eyes, the weirdness of this silent encounter fairly staggered him. He had admitted sense, for the story, has been a legitimate subject of conversation about here for years, that he made more than one step backwards. Then a sudden burst of rapid, senseless speech persuaded him at once that he had to do with an escaped lunatic. In fact, that impression never wore off completely. Smith has not in his heart given up his secret conviction of the man's essential insanity to this very day. As the creature approached him, jabbering in a most discomposing manner, Smith, 
unaware that he was being addressed as gracious lord and adjured in god's name to afford food and shelter kept on speaking firmly but gently to it and retreating all the time into the other yard at last watching his chance by a sudden charge he bundled him headlong into the wood lodge and instantly shot the bolt thereupon he wiped his brow though the day was cold he had done his duty to the community by shutting up a wandering and probably dangerous maniac smith isn't a hard man at all but he had room in his brain only for that one idea of lunacy he was not imaginative enough to ask himself whether the man might not be perishing with cold and hunger meantime at first the maniac made a great deal of noise in the lodge mrs smith was screaming upstairs where she had locked herself in her bedroom but amy foster sobbed piteously at the kitchen door wringing her hands and muttering don't don't i dare say smith had a rough time of it that evening with one noise and another and this insane disturbing voice crying obstinately through the door only added to his irritation he couldn't possibly have connected this troublesome lunatic with the sinking of a ship in east bay of which there had been a rumor in the darnford marketplace and i dare say the man inside had been very near to insanity on that night before his excitement collapsed and he became unconscious he was throwing himself violently about in the dark rolling on some dirty sacks and biting his fists with rage cold hunger amazement and despair he was a mountaineer of the eastern range of the carpathians and the vessel sunk the night before in east bay was the hamburg emigrant ship herzogin sophia dorothea of appalling memory a few months later we could read in the papers the accounts of the bogus immigration agencies among the sclavonian peasantry in the more remote provinces of austria the object of these scoundrels was to get hold of the poor ignorant people's homesteads and they were in league with the local usurers they exported their victims through hamburg mostly as to the ship i had watched her out of this very window reaching close hauled under short canvas into the bay on a dark threatening afternoon she came to an anchor correctly by the chart off the brenzett coast guard station i remember before the night fell looking out again at the outlines of her spars and rigging that stood out dark and pointed on a background of ragged slaty clouds like another and a slighter spire to the left of the Brenzett church tower in the evening the wind rose at midnight i could hear in my bed the terrific gusts and the sounds of a driving deluge about that time the coast guard men thought they saw the lights of a steamer over the anchoring ground in a moment they vanished but it is clear that another vessel of some sort had tried for shelter in the bay on that awful blind night had rammed the german ship amidships a breach as one of the divers told me afterwards that you could sail a thames barge through and then had gone out either scatheless or damaged who shall say but had gone out unknown unseen and fatal to perish mysteriously at sea of her nothing ever came to light 
and yet the hue and cry that was raised all over the world would have found her out if she had been in existence anywhere on the face of the waters. A completeness without a clue, and a stealthy silence as of a neatly executed crime, characterized this murderous disaster, which, as you may remember, had its gruesome celebrity. The wind would have prevented the loudest outcries from reaching the shore. There had been evidently no time for signals of distress. It was death without any sort of fuss. The Hamburg ship, filling all at once, capsized as she sank, and at daylight there was not even the end of a spar to be seen above water. She was missed, of course, and at first the Coast Guardman surmised that she had either dragged her anchor or parted her cable some time during the night and had been blown out to sea. Then, after the tide turned, the wreck must have shifted a little and released some of the bodies, because a child, a little fair-haired child in a red frock, came ashore abreast of the Martello Tower. By the afternoon you could see along three miles of beach dark figures with bare legs dashing in and out of the tumbling foam, and rough-looking men, women with hard faces, children mostly fair-haired, were being carried, stiff and dripping, on stretchers, on wattles, on ladders, in a long procession past the door of the ship inn, to be laid out in a row under the north wall of the Brenzett Church. Officially, the body of the little girl in the red frock is the first thing that came ashore from that ship. But I have patience amongst the seafaring population of West Colebrook, and, unofficially, I am informed that very early that morning two brothers, who went down to look after their cobble, hauled up on the beach, found a good way from Brenzett an ordinary ship's hen-coop lying high and dry on the shore, with eleven drowned ducks inside. Their families ate the birds, and the hen-coop was split into firewood with a hatchet. It is possible that a man, supposing he happened to be on deck at the time of the accident, might have floated ashore on that hen-coop. He might, I admit it is improbable, but there was the man, and for days, nay, for weeks, it didn't enter our heads that we had amongst us the only living soul that had escaped from that disaster. The man himself, even when he learned to speak intelligibly, could tell us very little. He remembered he had felt better, after the ship had anchored, I suppose, and that the darkness, the wind, and the rain took his breath away. This looks as if he had been on deck some time during that night, but we mustn't forget he had been taken out of his knowledge, that he had been seasick and battened down below for four days, that he had no general notion of a ship or of the sea, and therefore could have no definite idea of what was happening to him. The rain, the wind, the darkness, he knew. He understood the bleeding of the sheep, and he remembered the pain of his wretchedness and misery, his heartbroken astonishment that it was neither seen nor understood, his dismay at finding all the men angry and all the women fierce. He had approached them as a beggar, it is true, he said, but in his country, even if they gave nothing, they spoke gently to beggars. The children in his country were not taught to throw stones at those who asked for compassion. Smith's strategy, 
overcame him completely. The wood lodge presented the horrible aspect of a dungeon. What would be done to him next? No wonder that Amy Foster appeared to his eyes with the aureole of an angel in flight. The girl had not been able to sleep for thinking of the poor man, and in the morning, before the smiths were up, she slipped out across the back yard. Holding the door of the wood lodge ajar, she looked in and extended to him half a loaf of white bread, such bread as the rich eat in my country, he used to say. At this he got up slowly from amongst all sorts of rubbish, stiff, hungry, trembling, miserable, and doubtful. "'Can you eat this?' she asked in her soft and timid voice. He must have taken her for a gracious lady. He devoured ferociously, and tears were falling on the crust. Suddenly he dropped the bread, seized her wrist, and imprinted a kiss on her hand. She was not frightened. Through his forlorn condition she had observed that he was good-looking. She shut the door and walked back slowly to the kitchen. Much later on, she told Mrs. Smith, who shuddered at the bare idea of being touched by that creature. Through this act of impulsive pity he was brought back again within the pale of human relations with his new surroundings. He never forgot it. Never. That very same morning old Mr. Swaffer, Smith's nearest neighbor, came over to give his advice, and ended by carrying him off. He stood unsteady on his legs, meek and caked over in half-dried mud, while the two men talked around him in an incomprehensible tongue. Mrs. Smith had refused to come downstairs till the madman was off the premises. Amy Foster, far from within the dark kitchen, watched through the open back door, and he obeyed the signs that were made to him to the best of his ability. But Smith was full of mistrust. "'Mind, sir, it may be all his cunning,' he cried, repeatedly, in a tone of warning. When Mr. Swaffer started the mare, the deplorable being, sitting humbly by his side, through weakness, nearly fell out over the back of the high two-wheeled cart. Swaffer took him straight home, and it is then that I come upon the scene. I was called in by the simple process of the old man beckoning to me with his forefinger over the gate of his house as I happened to be driving past. I got down, of course. "'I've got something here,' he mumbled, leading the way to an outhouse a little distance from his other farm buildings. It was there that I saw him first, in a long, low room taken upon the space of that sort of coach-house. It was bare and whitewashed, with a small square aperture glazed with one cracked dusty pane at its further end. He was lying on his back upon a straw pallet. They had given him a couple of horse blankets, and he seemed to have spent the remainder of his strength in the exertion of cleaning himself. He was almost speechless. His quick breathing under the blankets pulled up to his chin. His glittering, restless black eyes reminded me of a wild bird caught in a snare. While I was examining him, old Swaffer stood silently by the door, passing the tips of his fingers along his shaven upper lip. I gave some directions, promised to send a bottle of medicine, and naturally made some inquiries. Smith caught him in the stackyard at New Barnes, said the old chap, in his deliberate, unmoved manner, and, 
as if the other had been indeed a sort of wild animal. That's how I came by him. Quite a curiosity, isn't he? Now, tell me, doctor, you've been all over the world. Don't you think that's a bit of a Hindu we've got hold of here? I was greatly surprised. His long black hair scattered over the straw bolster contrasted with the olive pallor of his face. It occurred to me he might be a Basque. It didn't necessarily follow that he should understand Spanish, but I tried him with the few words I knew, and also with some French. The whispered sounds I caught by bending my ear to his lips puzzled me utterly. That afternoon the young ladies from the rectory, one of them read Goethe with a dictionary, and the other had struggled with Dante for years, coming to see Miss Swaffer, tried their German and Italian on him from the doorway. They retreated, just the least bit scared of, by the flood of passionate speech which, turning on his palate, he let out at them. They admitted that the sound was pleasant, soft, musical, but, in conjunction with his looks, perhaps, it was startling, so excitable, so utterly unlike anything one had ever heard. The village boys climbed up the bank to have a peep through the little square aperture. Everybody was wondering what Mr. Swaffer would do with him. He simply kept him. Swaffer would be called eccentric were he not so much respected. They will tell you that Mr. Swaffer sits up as late as ten o'clock at night to read books, and they will tell you also that he can write a cheque for two hundred pounds without thinking twice about it. He himself would tell you that the Swaffers had owned land between this and Darnford for these three hundred years. He must be eighty-five to-day, but he does not look a bit older than when I first came here. He is a great breeder of sheep, and deals extensively in cattle. He attends market-days for miles around in every sort of weather, and drives sitting bowed low over the reins, his lank grey hair curling over the collar of his warm coat, and with a green plaid rug round his legs. The calmness of advanced age gives a solemnity to his manner. He is clean-shaved. His lips are thin and sensitive. Something rigid and monocle in the set of his features lends a certain elevation to the character of his face. He has been known to drive miles in the rain to see a new kind of rose in somebody's garden, or a monstrous cabbage grown by a cottager. He loves to hear tell of, or to be shown something that he calls outlandish. Perhaps it was just that outlandishness of the man which influenced old Swaffer. Perhaps it was only an inexplicable caprice. All I know is that at the end of three weeks I caught sight of Smith's lunatic digging in Swaffer's kitchen garden. They had found out he could use a spade. He dug barefooted. His black hair flowed over his shoulders. I suppose it was Swaffer who had given him the striped old cotton shirt, but he wore still the national brown cloth trousers in which he had been washed ashore, fitting to the leg almost like tights, was belted with a broad leathern belt studded with little brass discs, and had never yet ventured into the village. The land he looked upon seemed to him kept neatly, like the grounds round a landowner's house. The size of the cart-horses struck him with astonishment. The roads resembled garden-walks. 
and the aspect of the people, especially on Sundays, spoke of opulence. He wondered what made them so hard-hearted and their children so bold. He got his food at the back door, carried it in both hands carefully to his outhouse, and, sitting alone on his pallet, would make the sign of the cross before he began. Beside the same pallet, kneeling in the early darkness of the short days, he recited aloud the Lord's Prayer before he slept. Whenever he saw old Swaffer, he would bow with veneration from the waist, and stand erect while the old man, with his fingers over his upper lip, surveyed him silently. He bowed also to Miss Swaffer, who kept house frugally for her father, a broad-shouldered, big-boned woman of forty-three, with a pocket of her dress full of keys, and a great, steady eye. She was church, as people said, while her father was one of the trustees of the Baptist chapel, and wore a little steel cross at her waist. She dressed severely in black, in memory of one of the innumerable Bradleys of the neighborhood, to whom she had been engaged some twenty-five years ago, a young farmer who broke his neck out hunting on the eve of the wedding day. She had the unmoved countenance of the deaf, spoke very seldom, and her lips, thin like her father's, astonished one sometimes by a mysteriously ironic curl. These were the people to whom he owed allegiance, and an overwhelming loneliness seemed to fall from the leaden sky of that winter without sunshine. All the faces were sad. He could talk to no one, and had no hope of ever understanding anybody. It was as if these had been the faces of people from the other world, dead people, he used to tell me years afterwards. Upon my word, I wonder he did not go mad. He didn't know where he was, somewhere very far from his mountains, somewhere over the water. Was this America, he wondered? End of Part 2